Welcome to the Energy Transition Podcast. I'm Ronan Kavner, Deputy Editor of VI New Energy, and I'm delighted to be joined today by our Executive Editor for Operations, Noah Brenner, to talk about our fast-approaching Energy Intelligence Forum. Welcome, Noah. Now, this is our inaugural Energy Intelligence Forum, but we are building here, aren't we, on a long history of stimulating debate on these big issues facing the global energy sector. Well, that's true, Ronan. You know, for over 40 years, we co-hosted the forerunner of this event, which was uh, the Oil and Money Conference, and that brought together executives, policymakers, financiers, and, and experts from the worlds of energy and politics and finance. But honestly, you know, the world has changed a lot since that conference was founded, you know, uh, in 1980. And, and it was really time to reflect on, on the shift uh, globally towards a cleaner energy system to fight against climate change and, and to really bring affordable and, and reliable energy to, to everybody in the world. And so it, it was the right time to change the name of the conference, to, to reflect the changing landscape and really to reflect uh, the changing topics and, and, and the, the broadening of, of the dialogue uh, that, was, that was taking place there. Now, one big change we're all living through this year has been the COVID crisis. And this has been affecting so many aspects of our life and challenging us to find new ways forward. This has had consequences for us too, hasn't it? I, yes, it certainly has. I'm uh, I'm here in the Houston office for uh, only maybe the third time, I think, since uh, since March for this taping. So, um, no, I mean it's, it's obviously had a huge impact, and and I think um, you know, like many, this year's event is is going to be digital. You know, we're we're using a live streamed format, and so that's certainly going to be a big change for for us and and for delegates who will be watching it. But you know, it really hasn't changed the. You know, sort of the reasons that we put this conference on in the first place, which is to bring the industry together to talk about the issues that are shaping our future and and to really learn from one another. And so you know, we have an incredibly impressive lineup of speakers this year, as we have said, that span you know energy, finance, politics and business. Um, you know, we'll be speaking with the CEO of, of Saudi Aramco, of, of Royal Dutch Shell, ENI, Total, Occidental, Chevron, Petronas, Adnoc. Uh, we've got OPEC's Secretary General, uh, India's Petroleum Minister, UAE's Minister of Energy, and uh, and the Chinese Ambassador to the UK. So we really feel like you know we potentially have the strongest lineup that we uh, that we ever have for this conference, and I think it's it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Indeed, a kind of peerless line, lineup, and the pandemic is is front and central too, obviously in the in the conference team. The big energy reset, COVID, climate consequences. Tell us about that. Sure. I mean, this is, you know, we certainly, you know, COVID is, is, is what's going on in the world right now. But at the same point, we can't, you know, put, put climate on a back burner. And COVID really has accelerated a lot of the worries around climate and, and a lot of the shifts that we were seeing take place in, in the energy system. And of course, you know, I, it seems seems obvious, or you know, perhaps doesn't need saying, but but this has consequences. This has consequences for our industry in the way that we look at the future, um, but also in the way that we navigate the current uh, difficulties. You know, perhaps nowhere has the kind of nexus of of climate and COVID sort of come together with as much impact as it has in the energy industry. And so, you know, we still see renewable energy pushing forward and accelerating. But how COVID kind of impacts that uh, is is going to be a really interesting an interesting challenge and and something that that obviously um, is going to need a lot of discussion. 
Now, let's turn to some of the questions we will be addressing. Now, let's look at LNG, which we'll be focusing on on the first day of the event. I mean, the crisis has huge implications, doesn't it, across supply, demand and future prospects? It does. I mean, you know, the, the COVID crisis has completely shaken up uh, the global LNG um, sector. You know, current demand and future supply, uh, both are, are in flux. We've seen some of these uh, U.S. projects that, that have stalled. Uh, and, and some of the planned expansions that we, that we were watching globally have begun to slip. So potentially that sets us up for, uh, you know, perhaps a more constructive view of, of mid-2020s. But, I mean, in the near term, we've also seen this collapse in LNG demand due to the spread of the virus, and, and that's pushed down prices. And so that's been a, a near-term headwind for the companies that have, that have really made LNG front and center in their strategies. But then even looking beyond kind of these supply demand fundamentals, you know, gas itself is under an immense amount of scrutiny due to, um, you know, shifting uh, political climates, uh, you know, this push towards greener energy and, and worries about pollution. But also from the technological side, we're seeing renewable costs continue to fall. And so that's putting pressure on, on the market share for gas. And so, you know, this is really just a, a, a kind of a host of challenges that, that are going to have, um, you know, very big consequences for how we look at gas uh, in the coming decades. Indeed. Now, turning to oil supply, one big question is whether the OPEC plus alliance can weather the storm. What can we look out for there? Well, I mean, this is a, a really key question for especially kind of the near term future of oil markets. And so, you know, while we're seeing or while we've seen that kind of epic oil surplus in the, the spring of 2020 that prompted this, this really unprecedented uh, deal. I mean, and I think that's something to keep in mind is just the, the size of, of, of the supply revision that OPEC Plus was undertaking is, is really nothing that we've seen before. But, you know, since then, prices have firmed. Um, at the same point, uh, you know, we'll be looking at, at how durable kind of those, you know, that alliance is and those relationships as prices go up and down, I mean, certainly they're, they're down a bit in the last week, but, um, you know, different producing countries have different needs and they have different outlooks for how best to navigate the market. And so, you know, how will that, that group maintain discipline as a whole? And then, of course, there's the U.S. shale and the producers outside the alliance, and they shut in production to respond to lower prices. But just like the OPEC Plus Alliance and, and those producers, you know, each, each one has a slightly different outlook on the future. They have slightly different financial needs. And so, you know, how is that production going to start coming back um, and, and how quickly and, and to what volume? Now, looking at the wider geopolitical order, or perhaps disorder is a better word to use, what are some of the big themes here? Well, if the changing world order were not apparent already, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has certainly um, laid bare the, the changes that are, that are coming about in, in the geopolitical relationships globally. Uh, you know, with the Trump administration, the U.S. Uh, does not seem willing to carry the, the financial, the military costs of, of its traditional alliances. And, you know, this sort of post-World War II global order is, is being reshaped. Um, you know, we're seeing a, a more assertive China. Um, Russia may, you know, continues to be a, uh, an influence on, on the global geopolitical scene, you know, especially in the Middle East and North Africa, for sure. Um, and what does an election win by, by Donald Trump or, or by Joe Biden um, necessarily mean for, for U.S. foreign policy, uh, particularly the tensions between the U.S. and China? 
you know, if if Biden does win, is 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 geopolitics and is is a, a um, are these global relationships really his focus? Um, and how how is China viewing all of this and this shift in the U.S. relationship with the world? Um, there, there's an immense amount to unpack here. Indeed, and, and part of that is the other C in the conference, climate. I mean, this will all have a major impact, too, on the energy transition, won't it? Not least whether the world will succeed in meeting the objectives of the Paris Agreement, which is five years ago it was signed now. It's, it's hard to believe we're five years on from Paris. Um, but no, I mean, ach- achieving those UN targets uh, of actually limiting global temperature rise to, to 1.5 degrees or less is it's going to be an, an economic transformation the likes of which we, we really haven't seen before at a speed and a scale that, that is, you know, I hate to say unprecedented, but, but it is. It is truly unprecedented. And, you know, experts are divided on how long it's going to take to get there. But, you know, even the most optimistic ones are, you know, they do concede that, that, that we aren't there yet. We're not on a path to Paris. Yet at the same point, we are beginning to see, you know, even the types of companies and, and, and countries maybe that we might have doubted their resolve to tackle this issue, um, say, just a few years ago are all of a sudden stepping up to the plate with really ambitious plans, you know, whether it's China's net zero pledges or, you know, whether it's the, the much more concrete details around energy transition planning that we're seeing from, from particularly the European oil majors. And speaking of the kind of majors plans that the industry's wider concerns, I mean, in addition to the big themes of the forum, we'll be drilling down to some of these important details, specific areas for the industry. Can you outline some of these for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, you know, as I had just referenced, really looking at the upstream sector, there's there's just this remarkable pivot where you know the likes of of BP, Total, Shell, um, are really talking about oil being less important in their portfolio um, by 2050. You know, some of this is you know, if you look at say a BP, they're actually going to let their oil production decline um, by some 40 percent. Uh, over the next decade, you know, in the likes of Total, they're growing in other areas. And so the relevance of oil in their portfolio declines. But, you know, what does a 21st century oil and gas portfolio look like or, or, or the portfolio of an oil and gas company, what we would think of as an oil and gas company? And so, you know, which of these assets are transition proof? You know, which ones are not and, and you know, potentially need to be discarded? Who, who buys those assets if, if they don't fit within the major's portfolio? Um, and, and then, too, you know, what does it mean for the service sector and, and th- that's been really beaten down over the past few years? And, and how do they respond with offerings that that are that are reflective of, of what their new customers or what the, the customers new demands are going to be? It's it's incredibly um, an incredibly interesting shift. Indeed. And speaking of expectations for the 21st century, it, it has long been heralded as being a golden age for gas. Is the future for gas still bright then? I mean, I think that's a key question to be asked of, of many of, of the panelists and speakers coming up at the conference. You know, uh, climate action may already be undercutting the case for gas, both in developed economies as well as in developing economies. Um, certainly in the power sector, we're seeing incredible pressure from renewables, both on the cost uh, side of things, but also as, a, as you know, lower carbon. Um, but in other growing segments, you know, such as transport or, or shipping, we're also seeing pressure on the long-term role of gas. You know, geopolitically, gas is incredibly important to major producing and exporting countries. 
Um, but, you know, as well, there are these national priorities around gas usage and, and, um, and geopolitical relationships that, that, are, that are going to need to evolve. You know, we're looking particularly places like the Eastern Mediterranean and Nord Stream 2 and, and, and the U.S.-China relations. And, um, you know, gas is going to remain a key geopolitical question, a key economic question. But I think this idea that, that gas has a, a guaranteed place um, or has guaranteed a place that, that's as large um, as the one it has now is, is while not false, I, I think it's something that, that is going to come under increasing scrutiny. And of course, finance is key to all of this, isn't it? The money part of the forum's former name. Well, that is, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, you can't do anything, you know, we can have the, the most ambitious climate aspirations, we can have the, the political will to, to execute them, we can build these geopolitical relationships that will enable us to, to take steps down this, this pathway towards a, a new, different energy system. But without the financial support to, to make these, you know, these ideas a reality, to, to pour cement, to put, you know, put steel in the ground, um, you know, things are, are just going to remain in, you know, in notebooks. They're going to remain in blueprint form. And so you know, we've, seen, we've seen financial institutions that are much more reluctant to invest in oil and gas projects. Uh, they've been plagued by poor returns and, and poorly defined paths towards decarbonization. Um, and then we've also seen, you know, um, firms that are used to investing in oil and gas invest more strongly in renewables. And that, that creates a question around, is there going to be the capital that's needed to continue oil and gas development and, and meet demands uh, th- that is going to be there? I, I mean, I don't think anybody's saying that we're not going to need oil and gas um, at any point in the next you know, 30, 40 years. And so how is this affecting you know, everybody from the majors and, and independents to, to private equity? Um, you know, the, the one thing that, that links sort of all of the, the different parts of the oil and gas food chain is, is this financial angle. And so, you know, what, how should the industry think about its financial future in the midst of this incredible shift that we're seeing in the energy system? Well, there's certainly plenty to look forward to there. Um, thank you, Noah, for sharing those themes with us. And of course, we'll have a lot more as well with other panelists on whether oil demand has peaked, trading strategies and disrupted markets, as well as transport, technological innovation and more. Sure. And I just wanted to remind everyone that there is still time to book your place at the Digital Forum. It's going to be taking place from October 13th to 15th. And you can get more information at our events webpage. It's www.energyintelligenceforum.com. We would love to see everyone there. Yes, please do join us. So it just remains for me now to say thank you to all our listeners today. Uh, We hope you enjoy this podcast and that you'll tune in again for our next Energy Transition podcast. Thanks for listening to the Energy Intelligence podcast. Please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com.